Greetings, welcome, friends, acquaintances, people I don't know yet, to another episode of the Going Deep podcast, brought to you by me, Aaron Watson, the host and producer of the show. I'm really glad that you're tuned in today. We've got a great show for you. If you like today's episode or you've been listening to previous episodes and like those, I encourage you to please go on to the iTunes page for the show, leave a rating and review. That is so, so helpful for me. Um, will allow me to, to continue to produce episodes like the one that I put out today. Today's guest is Zach Malone. Zach uh, recorded this episode with me in my dining room. We spent about a half hour talking about venture capital. Uh, as a young guy who's never had a startup before, um, didn't really know anything about the venture capital process. So Zach was very informative about what the process looks like from his end, the things he looks for, advice he'd have for entrepreneurs, uh, just really helped clarify what entrepreneurs need to know about the venture capital process. Just a really smart, insightful, friendly guy. Really glad he was able to be on the show. So without further ado, here's my interview with Zach Malone. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, thank you very much for having me, Aaron. I'm really excited to be here. Um, so as you mentioned in the intro, Zach is uh, part of Draper Triangle Ventures. It's a venture capital firm in Pittsburgh. And when I was, got coffee with Zach last week, the story that, that we both agreed would have some interesting information really help people out there is helping understand the process from, hey, I am a young startup entrepreneur how do I get all the way to, I just got an investment from Draper Ventures or some other venture, venture capital firm? What, does, what do all the steps of that process look like? But before we you know, get too in the weeds with that, what does just a typical day in the life of someone in venture capital look like, Zach? Well, to be honest, it's, every day is a little bit different. Um, some days we're just listening to pitches. Some days we're doing a lot of due diligence and research. Um, some days there's a combination. It's it's hard to say what a typical day looks like, and I guess that kind of answers the question in a, you know, to an extent that there is no typical day. Everyone varies. So, so if I was a young entrepreneur, well, one of the things this is just what I've heard. I don't know if if you'd validate this or not. But the first investment you might get was probably maybe a friend or a family member, something that maybe just gets you off the ground, keep your head above water when things are starting, or maybe it's your own personal funds. Then as your company grows, you may find an angel investor or someone from the outside to just allow it to take the, the first incremental step. And then after that is when you traditionally go to a venture capital firm for some form of investment. Is that pretty typical or are there significant alternatives to that method of growing as a company? Yeah, I'd say that's 
fairly you know on point for the the, the fundraising path that a lot of these entrepreneurs go through um you know it's either friends or family there's a lot of great local incubators and accelerators in the region that can really add a lot of value we've got alpha lab alpha lab gear thrill mill i mean those are three great organizations in pittsburgh and i think outside of pittsburgh you kind of see the same similar organizations around have you been a part of or seen any cases where someone maybe skips all of that or skips one of those parts where you know something just grows so quickly or is um you know maybe gets so much revenue that they can jump right into venture capital what's what's maybe the basement for when a venture capital firm starts considering a venture worthy of investment well it's it's a good question let me try to figure out exactly how to answer that um a lot of entrepreneurs try to bypass the typical accelerator incubator funding uh, process, which some do. The majority, vast majority, usually don't, especially in this region. If you do, you're probably a second or third time entrepreneur who's already had an exit or success, and it's a lot easier to attract the attention of venture capitalists early. If you don't have that kind of experience, it becomes very difficult. So. Um, so it is possible that if you are a successful entrepreneur that has had an exit, you can kind of bypass those steps, but without having had a previous exit, it becomes very difficult. So I wouldn't say I don't recommend it. I mean, if you can do it, go for it. It's whatever works best for you. If you can attract the attention of a, a VC firm, then do it. But, you know, even those entrepreneurs who have had successful exits in the past, they probably took that same path at one point in their life. So and I think there's a ton of value that you can get out of going through those programs and working with the different mentors and all the contacts they provide. And the capital is only one small piece really of those programs. To get more into your role at Draper Ventures, you're one of the younger members of the firm. You spend a lot of time in the community, uh, meeting people, meeting young entrepreneurs, just making connections out there. What are some of the markers that you'll see where you'll say, hey, this is someone we need to start looking more into, potentially talking to them about potentially putting a deal together? Well, usually customers, that's always a good sign. Anytime a startup is really attracting you know, a lot of paying customers and they're getting traction, then that's really when we start to get interested in a deal, which is a little unfair because that makes it easier for us, but that's kind of the way it works, I guess. There's no specific levels of, say, revenue or amount of customers that really define when it's time to go look at a deal. It's You just kind of got to know it when you see it to an extent. If, you know, there can't be too many customers that they don't need us, essentially. You know, if, they're, if they're doing well without investment, then they don't need to really speak with us. We do try to stay engaged with as many members of the community as possible, either entrepreneurs or other leaders in that community that can help recommend, hey, you should pay attention to company X. They're really doing well and probably sit down and talk to them. To be honest, we try to speak with everyone if we can. It's not completely possible, but I think we do meet with the vast majority of at least Pittsburgh-based startups and startups in the Midwest that are looking to raise capital. And we kind of, if it is too early after we hear their kind of initial pitch in the meeting, we like to almost leave the door open so they can keep coming back and talking to us about their growth and 
as we look and pay attention to each deal, you know, as I said, each one kind of has their own markers where they would reach that level, but that allows us to decide, okay, hey, we should really start getting serious on this company and really put a lot of time into doing due diligence and conducting research and finding out if this is an investment that we're interested in making. Okay, so if the business or startup that you've met with is beyond that kind of we'll keep in touch phase is say, you know, we want to initiate some due diligence, start doing some research to get a little more information about if this is something we're interested in. What does that due diligence look like? What does, what kind of research is being done to analyze the viability of that investment? So one big thing, not to go back to customers again, but probably we love to do customer calls and talk to existing customers of the startup and just really understand how those customers view the product these companies are selling and really where they see the value. And if that aligns with the, what we're being told that where the startup sees that they're adding value, um, that's always a really big piece of it. We you know, we know we're not experts in a lot of what we do. So we try to rely on people that are and get feedback from them. I think that's a very valuable piece of the, the entire due diligence process. Well, I mean, we obviously do things like checking the technology stack and making sure that it actually works and we're not being sold a lie. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's more of just an administrative transactional piece. We, uh, we also usually rely on experts for that. Yeah, then we like to look at competitors. That's always a big one. All of these companies are so early and they're usually doing something so disruptive that there's rarely a direct competitor. But there's usually you know, somebody out there doing something they could somehow add the same value that company A is trying to add as company B. What they may be taking a different approach, but they probably solve the same problem. And then you also have to decide if that's gonna, uh, you know, remove some incumbent from whatever providers has a solution that's currently being used, and if it's really enough to bump them off and take them, take the business from them. So, it's those are the really the big things we look for. So customers. Would it would it be alarming if they're trying to solve a problem that you've seen another firm fail at, or would you actually be more interested because maybe we have this story of a failure that we can adjust and maybe tweak some of the strategies of this firm that didn't make it to end up being successful? Yeah, I don't think that'd be alarming if they were going to try to solve the problem that we've seen someone not solve before. Um, I mean, we may have a bias, unfortunately, especially if we've invested and we really spent a lot of time with a portfolio company that ended up failing, trying to provide a solution to a a problem. But no, wouldn't rule them out for potential investment. So you've done the due diligence, you've done this research. I'd imagine that maybe if there is a you know, particularly interesting or promising startup out there. Maybe there are other venture firms that may be competing to try to bring that company in. Is that ever the case sometimes? Yes, that is the case. Not as much in the Midwest as you would see on the coasts, but yeah, there's definitely some competition to get into deals. One of the nice things about Pittsburgh in the Midwest is there's not nearly as much, and a lot of times we collaborate with other firms. So we get along with other firms in the area. And if we're looking at a deal, especially if it's a deal that we know a partner, a different firm, maybe have you know some deep domain experience related to that deal, we will pass that along and see if they're interested as well. And 
try to collaborate and create synergies. In those situations, would you ever be trying to maybe rush to... There is, to be honest. There's a little bit of FOMO sometimes in deals where we realize, like, okay, this is a really attractive deal. We need to move quickly to get into it if we want to get into it. And that's always scary because then you're afraid that you're not going to do everything you should and really thorough due diligence and look at the deals with a completely unbiased perspective. But it is something that does happen. Gotcha. And when you're making that offer, what does that process look like? Like as far as you're really putting an offer out to the startup, they maybe have like a time limit for how long they can consider this or how, what does that negotiation process look like? So we try to avoid having negotiations per se. We try to make the discussions more collaborative and be as transparent and open with how the process is going to move forward as possible. Now, every process for each deal can be different. We typically like to do all of our due diligence prior to putting down a term sheet if we can. We have that luxury to avoid putting a term sheet down and you know causing maybe unnecessary excitement or level of interest that doesn't necessarily exist and then taking that off the table. Because I mean, as you know, a term sheet's a non-binding agreement. Yeah. So when the startups sign them, they could have a false sense of hope that you know, they're going to actually raise capital and that may not always be the case. So we typically try to avoid taking the term sheet off the table. In terms of a deadline, once the term sheet's down, there is occasionally, but usually that's not an issue. It's if we have a deadline, we'll, we're willing to continue to extend it as long as, you know, while they're doing their due diligence on us or there's any other possible delays in the process. So that's not a big problem. One of the other things we talked about last week was how the service that your venture, uh, a venture capital firm would provide like Draper beyond the money. So you mentioned that another firm may have um, expertise in a specific domain, but what that really boils down to is we have people who have maybe been in this industry, have a lot of institutional knowledge that we can share with this startup to help them meet the right people, answer the right questions, consider things that maybe they weren't previously considering. How does that relationship work once you've taken on a new company? In terms of adding value beyond the capital? Yes, sir. Well, we only like to look at deals that we believe we can add value to beyond capital, to be honest, like like we just said. But so we probably not get into a deal if we knew that there, we weren't going to be able to help in that way. So it's actually kind of determined up front rather than once we've already invested. But one of the big things that we can bring to the table, at least we like to think we can, I, I honestly believe that we do a lot of times, is you know, customer contacts and you know, help sourcing C-level hires, which can be difficult a lot of times, especially in this region. Yeah, the, the customers are always a big one. I mean, it's it's always nice to have someone out there who can introduce you to five or six potential adopters of your platform right off the bat. You know, that can pay for the investment in itself right there. So how we do that, it's really just about maintaining relationships and keeping our network and our being out there, getting to know people and who it is that we would need to speak with to make the connection. We also have you know, our firm, which is unique. We're a member of 
the Draper Venture Network, which is a syndicate of 14 venture firms around the world. And they share various resources, one being customer contacts. So we also reach out to our network, which allows us to operate like a much larger firm. And I mean, we, right now we're investing on an $80 million fund. So we don't have the overhead to have 20 or 30 biz dev guys out there. People like me talking to everyone from Oracle to Ford Motor Company to know who it is you need to speak with at those organizations to try to have them purchase your product. But a lot of times the Draper Venture Network can't help us with that. So that's, that's incredibly valuable. What I also made me think of is there's the difference in just kind of history where Draper has been around for decades. They, they have partners who have been in the workforce networking, making professional connections for years and years and years. If you're fresh out of grad school or you know, some a young guy or girl who's just in the earlier stages of their professional working lifetime, being able to leverage those connections and meet the right people takes a lot of time. And right. kind of kind of jump starting that process seems like it'd be incredibly valuable. You like to think so, yeah, I think yeah. it helps. See, a lot of times too, the people that start these companies, they're even if they're not fresh out of school, they may be more tech focused and really kind of heads down building the technology stack, which you know then they're obviously not able to be out in the community and, and getting to know these people. So absolutely. And uh, one of the other things, you know, this is an analogy for for sports, business, whatever you want to do. But if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And being able to leverage and recognize the skills that you don't possess but another partner could possess really will accelerate your growth. Do you see a lot of, or do you see many entrepreneurs out there who don't want to collaborate, who want to kind of go it alone and not take any outside money? Has that been more common recently? Or what do you do when you come across someone in that situation? Well, um, you know, I don't come across a ton of individuals that are in that situation, and that's probably just because they wouldn't be talking to me if they were in that situation. Um, you know, if you can do it, go for it. I, I, one thing we are always weary of is anyone who comes through our door who's raising capital who may not actually need it, right? So if they can really grow their business without our help, we're, it's, it's a little off-putting as to why they're actually speaking with us. It may be for the wrong motivation. So you know, I, I'd say more power to you. If you can raise, raise the money or don't need to raise any money and can grow your business, it's, it's a great thing. And you, that's something you should do. What would some of those potentially negative motivations be? Um, sometimes it's easy to get you may look at, okay, if I can go out here and I can raise this money, that's going to solve all my problems, right? But a lot of times money may not actually solve some of the problems at a startup. You know, there may be other issues, you know, I guess money and getting new customers, right? Which may be the two things we can help add. If it's really, either your focus is off or there's, you know, the team isn't getting along or maybe everyone's just not, you know, on the same page in some way over some issue, the, you know, capital isn't really going to help that. It's there's probably something you should work out prior to trying to raise capital. I'm not sure. Like we 
would part of the due diligence process also then be kind of meeting the team and, and understanding how the rest of the team works and the entire structure of that organization as opposed to just dealing with the top or you know top two executives at the um, company that you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. The number one a data point that we evaluate when we're deciding to invest in a company is the team and the individuals at the startup that, you know, I guess we're fortunate enough that these companies are early enough that there's usually not too many employees. So we can typically fit everyone you know, in our conference room where we can go get lunch and get to know everyone. But that's definitely a huge piece of the due diligence process and what we look at because you know, ultimately these companies are startups and Whatever they're doing the day we invest is probably not what they're going to be doing the day that someone they're acquired or they go public. So it's going to be on the team to adapt and really solve problems in a new way to continue to grow the business. And if you have the wrong individuals there, they're not going to be able to do that. So, gotcha. Um, kind of jump into the other side of the coin. Uh, you're always looking for investments. You said you have this uh, approximately $80 million fund to. Um, find the uh, companies out there worthy of investment. But the other side of that is actually raising the funds from the investors who you are investing on behalf on. It's not exclusively um, you know, those who work at Draper making those investments. There are institutional clients, there are individual clients that, uh, I guess maybe not clients is the right word, but they come in- Called the limited partners. Please. Limited partners, there you go. Um, who are looking, in, looking to you know, make a nice return on their investment by working with you guys. What does the fundraising process look like? Um, are you out there making presentations? How, how do you even find potential limited partners out there? Well, I'll be honest, I that's probably the one aspect of what we do that I'm the least involved with, but I can provide some kind of high level overview of really how that process works. Um, yeah, there's a lot of presentations. I guess I, I one piece of it that I am involved with is putting the presentations together a lot of times in PowerPoint and just getting everything ready. Um, but the typically the partners at any firm are the ones who really go out and try to source potential limited partners. So at our firm, Jay, Mike, Tom, Will, and Jonathan, and they go out and they, they talk about what we've done, the kind of returns we've produced, what we're, you know, if we've changed our focus for the new fund, how that could affect how we're going to make investment decisions, whether that's your stage of investment, uh, your check size, um, different vertical focuses, you know, and hopefully that appeals. So absolutely, it's, it's a lot like raising capital to start up with sort of a different angle on what you're you're selling essentially. Would you say then that a lot of the pitch to that to that potential investor is predicated on the track record and the history and the you know, values that your firm holds or are, is there a specific discussion of, you know, we have these three new companies that we just found that we're really excited about. Do you get kind of into the weeds with those specific individual investments that you're making or is it more broadly, these are our strategies, this is what we're doing as a firm? Well, at the beginning of the process, it's a lot more on the track record and the history of the firm. For us, at least, we typically raise capital over you know, some window of time, say six months, and you know, ideally, we can have the first close prior to that window expiring that allows us to go out and invest in deals before the entire fund is raised. So 
if we're at the point where we have done deals, we will discuss deals we've gotten into, which can be sometimes a catch-22, because if the new limited partners don't think those are good deals, then yeah. they may not you know, want to invest. But it can also be a good thing because it can really show the quality of what you can find and people that you know we're lucky enough to be able to invest with and work with. So, so before we were talking about how the partners in the firm helps this new startup find com- customers, helps them get out and just provide that assistance outside of the money. Do you ever see the limited partners taking on any sort of role like that, being a, a champion of a brand or a company, or are they traditionally very hands-off in their involvement? Some do, most don't. Most are fairly hands-off. And I guess you'd have to probably speak to maybe Jay Katerns and Mike Stubler at our firm for full answer on that, because those are the guys that get calls whenever maybe we make an investment that they don't like. But yeah. Um, for the most part, they're fairly hands-on. They are very you know, helpful when we reach out to them, though. So if it's more of a proactive approach and we say to Institution A, would you be able to introduce us to this connection that we know you have? Typically, they're, they're very, very helpful with doing that. This has all been, been very enlightening in the effort to kind of start wrapping things up. Do you have any favorite events to attend uh, in the Pittsburgh area to find these potential entrepreneurs out there, favorite places to go where you meet a lot of great people? Um, let's see, places to go. Well, Alpha Lab, Alpha Lab Gear and Thrill Mill, are all, they're sort of the epicenter of a lot of what's happening with the nascent tech startups in Pittsburgh. Where, so that's typically where I spend a good amount of my time. There's always a ton of events going on there. We have no shortage of you know, any kind of networking or introduction that you can be there's, there's no shortage of people that you can be introduced to at those venues the specific events thrival festival is coming up in september that's a great one it's sort of a you know, unofficial celebration of the technology community in pittsburgh um it's put on by bobby's apollo and luke skirman at thrill mill they do a uh, you know, there's a big concert at the end of the week and then week prior there's just different events all focused on innovation in their own way. So if you want to meet anybody at those, that'd be a great place to go. Um, other than that, I mean, there's, I feel like I'm leaving somebody out, but there, there's a lot going on, but those are probably the best places to start kind of getting involved in the community. You know, I know the hardware store is a great place to go. Um, if you go to Zeke's Coffee in East Liberty, you'll always see someone who's working on a new startup there pretty much all hours of the day. Yes. If you could assign one piece of reading or something specific for those in the venture capital or aspiring entrepreneurs to read on a regular basis to up their game, what would you assign them? Now, I uh, personally, I would advise people to really look for the startups in their community and find their websites and really read their blogs and follow what's happening organically right around them. Rather than, I mean, TechCrunch is great. You can learn a lot there, but to me, that's like you know, trying to learn about music, paying attention to TRL. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's, I shouldn't say that. It's, TechCrunch is a lot of good information, but if you really want to get involved in the startup community and really get a feel for what's going on around you, I would really go and visit those individual websites of different companies around here or you know, Alpha Lab or Thrill Mill and start from there and then spend some time really digging and getting to know what's happening. This has all been 
very, very insightful. Zach, thank you so much for coming on the show. Going to give you the mic one last time to issue a challenge to the audience. So you can take it away here. All right. So my challenge to the audience would be you know, go out to one of those venues we discussed earlier or some networking event in the startup community and really get to know an entrepreneur who's starting a business and understand you know, what they're doing and try to introduce them to a potential customer because the, the biggest thing they need are customers. And if, you know, if a hundred people could go out and do that and be successful, that would make a dramatic difference in it, kind of the strength and the traction of these companies in Pittsburgh. So I'd really like to if you could do that and go for it. I like that. And that's a, that's a theme from the show. We've had other people come on who talk about making those connections and that's a great specific way to go about doing it. But the number one thing is if you make those connections, you have no idea how that's going to come back to you down the road. So it may, you may think, well, I'm basically just kind of working as a salesperson almost for this, this company, but those connections, those meaningful favors and, and help that you provide others always comes back in some form or another. Hope so. Amen. Uh, we just went deep with Zach Malone. Thanks so much for coming on. The Thank you very much, Aaron. Honored to be here. Appreciate it. Once again, that was Zach Malone of Draper Triangle Ventures. Uh, thanks so much, Zach, for coming on the show. And thank you, everyone out there, for tuning in and listening. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, found it insightful, informative, uh, please subscribe to the show. Give us a rating and review on iTunes. That's incredibly, incredibly valuable for us. You should also check out some earlier episodes. I actually met Zach through Scott Rogerson from episode number 12. Uh, Scott provided a ton of insight. Uh, about his path to becoming the CEO of Community Elf. So that might be an insightful episode for you to check out. Um, in the meantime, uh, thank you so much for listening, and we will have many more insightful interviews in the future. So until next time, have a great day, everybody.